0: Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash church. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. So glad that you're here. Those that are watching online, always good to have you a part of this. And uh, those that are tuning in, listening to our podcast later, uh, we just appreciate so much, uh, you being a part of this message and this word, and those of you that are face to face, I can see your faces, uh, so glad that you're here and uh, a part of today. Listen, I'm pumped about uh, this service, I'm pumped about this message because in studying this and getting deeper and deeper in this, it just lights this fire inside of me. And I'm passionate about it. If you haven't already done so, please check in. Uh, all of your check-ins will help us uh, spread the word, help us buy uh, clean drinking water for those in need. So All of our Facebook check-ins help to go do missions. Share this right now on Facebook, and uh, maybe someone will join in and uh, be a part of, of today's service. Um, I want to... Uh, Remind you that this week we're on week three of a five-part series uh, that we have creatively entitled Brand New. Everybody say brand new. And so today we're in week three. If you haven't caught up to us, if you're watching online, maybe this is your first. It's kind of like coming into the third uh, movie of a five-movie series. And so go back. I challenge you to go back and watch and listen to part one and part two, because I really want everyone wrestling with some of these things we're talking about, because some of it is difficult to comprehend. It's a a difficult pill to swallow, some of the things that we're tackling. And so go back and and watch the first two, be a part of this. But this morning, I want to talk about uh, religion. And how religion has kind of creeped in because everyone knows that religion across the world is a really, really powerful weapon, right? I mean, that's true. And everyone should know that religion can also be very dangerous. Uh, If you have not experienced that, then you just haven't been around it long enough. But Religion can be very dangerous, and the reason that religion can be so powerful and so dangerous is because it's often fueled by superstition and by fear. Perhaps uh, the thing that makes religion so powerful also is that it is anchored in our conscience, and our conscience, whether we like it or not, drives our behavior, and it controls our Our behavior and our consciences, some of our conscience is really connected to truth. But unfortunately, some of our conscience is connected to error. And that's natural. We're all, we're all associated. We've all been a part of that. We've all experienced that. But like I said last week, our consciences actually determine religious realities, whether they reflect actual reality or not. Okay, So I'll say that one more time. Our consciences actually determine religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. Now, we've all experienced that. For example, things that maybe at one point in your life you used to consciously, you used to feel really, really guilty about, but now you just don't feel guilty about it anymore. Or on the flip side, things that you used to not ever feel guilty about, now for some reason through through your journey in, in church or in religion, now all of a sudden, things you used to never feel guilty about, you feel really, really guilty about. And in our country, we've seen extraordinary changes in the national conscience of our nation uh, It is as as it moves really from one direction to another. For those of us who are Christians or those of us who who grew up in the United States or or those of us that grew up even just West, our consciences, whether you're aware of it or not, have been shaped in some form or fashion by a version of Christianity. So you can have grown up in the United States having never actually been a Christian or a believer, but your conscience has still been shaped somehow by a version of Christianity, a type of Christianity that probably is a combination of what Jesus actually came and what Jesus taught and a combination of the temple model, as we've discussed over the last few weeks. And all of our consciences have been fine-tuned to where we feel... The way we do about God, all of our consciences have been fine-tuned to push us, to drive us to feel a certain way about sin, to feel a certain way about our beliefs, to feel a certain way about one another, and it all essentially goes back to what we've been taught, just how we were raised, the, the world we live in, and I'm not talking about just your family, I'm talking about In the United States, there has been a shape that has taken place in all of our minds and all of our consciences. The truth is this, that whoever controls the conscience controls the behavior. Okay? So think about that. Whoever controls the conscience, whoever controls your conscience controls your behavior. So what we're trying to do throughout this series and over the last couple of weeks and in the next two weeks is we're really trying to tease out and to separate the two. What Jesus actually taught, what Jesus actually brought, and the temple model that we've kind of all grew up in. Now, when I say temple model, just to kind of uh, review a little bit, when I say temple model, I'm not talking about just the Jewish temple system even though it includes the Jewish temple system. I'm talking about the temple model, which actually serves as a template, okay? As, as the template for Christian for religion in general. And it goes all the way back uh, further than the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and of course the Jews. It even includes some of the mud hut regions. Of the world today, where you'll find witch doctors, and in some areas of the world, you'll find this template in place. And we call that the temple model. Everybody say temple model. And and when you preach with me, I'll read this faster and I'll go through this faster, and we'll get out of here and beat all the other churches to lunch. Amen. Nobody but me cares about lunch afterwards. I've been thinking about it all morning. What, I was going to eat after service, but that's just because I'm fat. But anyway, off the subject. That's another sermon for another day. Preach it. But the temple model always looks like this. There's four components. You have sacred places, and then you have sacred texts, and these are, are, are oracles or documents or texts, and then they're controlled by sacred people uh, and have always historically up to recently just been men and still really men in the most... Uh, Uh, highest highest roles of that and and always comes along with sincere followers and I said a few weeks ago you could replace sincere followers with superstitious followers but I was thinking about it this week you could also replace it with scared followers you could also replace it with scarred followers So so that's what the temple model looks like, but there's always this group of people who are dependent upon the teachings of a certain group of men so that they can understand where they actually stand when it comes to God. These men, basically these sacred men, stand at the gates of heaven and hell and determine where everyone goes. That's a powerful position, right? Amen. <laughs> and our consciences, listen, our consciences are fine-tuned to these teachings. And in some way, it's the reason that so many people have abandoned religion. It's the reason so many people have just gotten out and headed for the hills. They can't take it anymore because they've really gotten on to what's going on here, okay? There's a group of sacred men who control the sacred texts, and they determine how those texts are read and they don't want to have anything to do with it. But if you're here this morning, I've got great news for you. Jesus showed up and Jesus showed up and he brought something brand new. He launched something brand new. It wasn't Judaism 2.0. It wasn't religion 301 or 201 or whatever. It was something brand, it wasn't an added to, it was brand new. It was some something that was brand new. And Jesus says, this is for the entire world. Now, the temple model was always geographically specific, meaning that in every geographic region, they had their temple, their version of religion, their version of God, their own sacred people, sacred texts, sacred places. Jesus shows up and he says, this is not geographically specific. This is actually for every single person, for every single race, every ethnic group, every, every person in every region of the world for all time. It was incredible. He established, when he did this, under the, the, the things that were brand new, he established a new covenant. Now, we call it a new covenant. Really, we could get outside of the covenant thing because it's not about covenant anymore. But covenant then was a transition because they had only lived their lives under covenant. And so when Jesus brought in a new covenant, it really wasn't even about a covenant. It was about getting them away from the old into the new. And so Jesus establishes this new covenant. And then Jesus brings this brand new command A brand new command, and he says every temple system has had tons and tons, hundreds of commands, including the Jewish temple command, but I'm going to give you one, one command, and it is to be the filter through which we all live our lives. It is to be the filter through which every other command in the world has to go through. Then he says, through this, I'm bringing in a new ethic. A brand new ethic in which all your decisions are to be made. When you're not sure what to do, and I brought this up last week, you ask yourself in every situation, when you're mad, when they tick you off, when, when you're confused, when you're discouraged, when you're, when you're just scared, you ask yourself this question, what does love require of me right now in this situation? Is a new ethic. And through that new ethic, there was a brand new movement that was being sparked, that was being established. He says, I am establishing my brand new ecclesia. Everybody say ecclesia. Ecclesia. And this was his gathering, his congregation, his assembly. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Ecclesia even got lost in translation because in English, it got translated to church. But church is actually a German word that means house of the Lord. And so Jesus, when he said ecclesia, it had nothing to do with a place. So we translated it to a place. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's not about a place. This is about a people. This is about a people, a new movement of people and assembly who are going to take my words and my commands and my lifestyle and they're going to spread this throughout the entire world. World forever and ever and ever and ever, and everybody said, Amen. A movement where love would replace law keeping, where self sacrifice would replace animal sacrifice, where vertical, in in other words, God, how am I doing? God, how am I doing? Am I okay? God would replace, would be replaced by horizontal. God, how are they doing? How are they doing? What do they need? How can I help them? And if you are at the temple, and Jesus says this, he says, if you are at the temple, and you're there to make your annual sacrifice, and you're there to worship God with your sacrifice, and all of a sudden it dawns on you that somebody back home has an issue, has a problem with you, he says, you know what? God can wait. Leave your sacrifice right there, and you go and you take care of those on your left, your right, your brothers, sisters. It's about horizontal this was unheard of because this was something brand new. Then the apostle Paul steps onto the scene. Now the apostle Paul is the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He believed himself to be the greatest of all Pharisees. He steps onto the pages of history as someone who is trying to single-handedly stamp out or stomp out the movement called the way, the Jesus movement. So You got to imagine this, Paul, the Apostle Paul is this type A personality. He didn't care if you were on his his team or not. He was going to do it with or without you. And so he just goes and starts to try to stop this Jesus movement. And and the scripture tells us that on the road to Damascus, he has this encounter. And I'm not going to go into that whole story, but he has this crazy, awesome moment between him and God. And after that moment, Paul became a spokesperson for Jesus. He became a spokesperson for this Jesus. The very same movement that Paul was trying to stamp out. He became a spokesperson for them. And Paul, more than anyone else in the whole entire Bible, you find me one person greater than Paul in this, and I'll... I'll, I'll concede to that. But Paul, better than anyone else, understood this. You cannot mix and match the old with the new. The reason Paul understood that better than anybody else is because he was a teacher. He was a professor. He was a scholar of the law. He knew the law, the old system, the old covenant. And then he has this encounter with Jesus, and he sees this new covenant, new command, new ethic, this new movement, and Paul understood you cannot mix and match the two of these. They won't work. They will not work because a little bit of temple thinking with this new Jesus movement and this new ecclesia It's going to ruin the entire thing. It will ruin everything that Jesus came to do. So Paul writes a letter to the Galatians. And uh, we camped out kind of on this verse last week. He writes this letter to the Galatians. uh, And and he gives them these unthinkable implications. Uh, And he says this. Listen, the only thing that counts. And again, remember, Paul's writing this. He is a scholar, he knows all 630 laws in the judicial system, and he says, "The only thing that counts out of everything, everything that I've ever taught my entire life, he says, the only thing that counts is expressing is faith expressing itself through love." Wow. Paul, Paul said that. That's a big deal. Now you take one of the Galatians, somebody who wasn't raised in this temple law system, the judicial law system, the Jewish system. They say that, you know, that's awesome. It's powerful, but it's not nearly as powerful as when Paul says it. Because Paul gets it. He understood it. It was brand new. And he didn't stop there. The Apostle Paul, he says something. If you grew up in church, you've heard this a hundred times. He wrote this letter to the Christians in, uh, in Corinth. Now, when he writes this letter, you got to imagine this. In Corinth, there were all these Jewish people who had heard the message of Jesus and they became Christians. They were Jewish Christians. And then he preaches this message to the uh, Galatians, okay? And they all become Christians, okay? And I mean, to the Galatians, to the Gentiles. I was like, man, Galatians didn't sound right. He preaches this message to the Gentiles and the Gentiles all become Christians. Then what happens is, About every year, all of these Jewish Christians would pack their things, and they would take their annual pilgrimage to the temple. They would go to Jerusalem, they would go to the mountain of God and worship, they would make their sacrifices. And then these Gentile Christians that didn't have the Jewish system temple, they would go down the street to their pagan temples that they had grown up in, that they had been a part of, and they would worship in their pagan temples. Paul sees this happening, and so Paul writes specifically to this, these two groups of people, the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, who are both going separately to their temples to worship. Paul writes this. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples? Huh? Our bodies are temples, yeah. Do you not know that your bodies are temples? Well, oh, how can my body be a place that I go, and Paul says, "Yeah, yeah, that was the old way, okay? The, the, the that was the old way of thing. That was old covenant, okay? That's long gone. This that was temple model. Jesus has done something entirely brand new, and and Paul's trying to teach them the same thing that Jesus was trying to teach them: that you are sacred, you are a sacred place. I used this example last week." But if we were to all travel and go to the Holy Land and we were to stand at the site where Jesus was buried, at the tomb in the garden where Jesus was buried, and we were to stand there, we would all get goosebumps. I mean, what a powerful place to be in the Holy Land and stand there. What Jesus wants you to know is you are more sacred than that place. It's not about places anymore. It's about you, people. You are more sacred than any piece of dirt you can imagine. Not only that, So is the person that is to your left and to the right, the front and back, the person that made you mad, the person you're offended with, the person you love. They are sacred. Well, but I I just don't understand, Paul, how I can be a, a portable temple. He says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Jews would say, Well, Wait, wait, just one minute. I don't know how they would talk to exactly, you, but I'd like to believe they would say, "Just wait one minute." You know, I went into this. <laughs> I went into I'm say it, but he may watch one day. I doubt it. But uh, I was going to imitate a, a pastor friend of mine. But they go into this and they say, "Well, <laughs> the, <laughs> the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit is the Holy of Holies." Paul, you know that, and he says, "No, not anymore." Well, the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit is the temple, the holy of holies. That's where. And Paul says, "No, not anymore. The holy of holies has no longer any significance whatsoever." This is a big deal. It'd be like somebody—if you've gone to church your whole entire life—somebody stands up and says, "Now, zero reason for you to go to church ever again." The church now has. Zero significance whatsoever. What? Well, we're supposed to go to church every Sunday, right? It's what we're to do. Well, this what what Paul is saying is: Listen, the temple, the holy of holies, has no significance anymore. The same Holy Spirit, the holiness that dwelt in the temple, in the holy of holies, Paul says now it lives inside of you. He indwells you. He lives inside of you. Your bodies are the temple and the Christian to your left and the Christian to your right and the slave to your left and the slave owner to your right, the man in front of you, the woman behind you, the child that is running in your direction. They too are sacred in God's eyes. They are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is mind boggling to them. And for some of us, it's mind boggling because we're thinking of specific people that cannot possibly be a temple, right? I did. I did. There was nothing about the old. It was all moving into the new. And this was fascinating. So the church in the beginning gets off to this extraordinary start. And uh, today I'm going to go through some history. And I know history can be so boring uh, for some people just don't get into it. But me, I love understanding where this all came from and where it but if you go back and you look at some pagan literature uh, and you can find this there's lots and lots of pagan literature uh, in the you know in the 80s, 60s, and 70s, and 90s and 100s and to the year 200s some really awesome things but one of the things that the pagans always wrote about Christians as these Christians, these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians started this incredible movement one of the things they would always say is they just loved like crazy. They forgave people. They forgave one another like crazy. One of the things that blew their mind, the pagan's mind, and they wrote about this all the time, was they couldn't believe and they couldn't understand why Christians would go out into the streets and take orphans, kids that had been abandoned, off the streets, and they would take them into their own house and care for them. It didn't make sense because in Roman tradition, if your child was sick and unhealthy or diseased, you would abandon them and they would leave them in the streets. These Christian people would go in and the pagans would write and say, these poor Christian families would take in these kids and adopt these kids as if they were their own and take care of them. That blew their mind. But that was a a marker for Christians. That's what they saw, Christians. Another thing that that blew their mind and and as they gained traction were Christians were not afraid of death. They were not afraid of death because of their resurrected Savior. And I've tapped on this before in the past, but in the days when they had the Roman Colosseum and the fights and stuff, and they would take the Christians, they would chain them up and they would send them out into these battles to the death. It would blow the pagans away because the Christians had zero fear of death. They called it sleeping because they knew to live is Christ and to die is gain. game. There is zero fear. And so the Christian community began to gain traction. They didn't even have a Bible. The Gentiles didn't even have the law and the prophets. They didn't even have an Old Testament. The Jews had that. It wasn't until about 25 years or so after Jesus' resurrection, that the Apostle Paul's letters started to kind of be distributed around. Copies of these letters started kind of getting passed around, but there was really no literature. There was no canon. There was just extraordinary faith fueled by people's love for other people. That was this whole movement. It wasn't on a book and a gospel and canon of scriptures and correct interpretations. It was fueled by love, by love for people. And it gained traction. And then something extraordinary happened. In the year AD 70, the Jewish temple was destroyed. Bum bum bum. Man, I need to preach with sound effects. I need a sound effects track that just hit boom, 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 and an applause sound track. That's what I really need. An applause soundtrack. Yeah! That's what i you know, anyway. Thank you! Oh, so, the, the, in 70 AD, the Jewish temple was actually destroyed. And ancient Judaism, as they had known it up until that point, was completely destroyed. The reason is because the artifacts and the scrolls and the documents, the things that were housed in that temple, which was the whole tribe of Judah, the whole lineage of, of priesthood and all that, everything they needed to know who the next priest could be or could be or could be or could be. Everything was destroyed and gone. The temple system was gone. It was as if God physically in the world punctuated the fact that the temple model was done. It had served its purpose. It pointed towards the Messiah. It pointed towards Jesus. But Jesus himself, he says, Look, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it, to bring it to a designated end. The entire law, Jesus says, can be summed up into two rules love God and demonstrate your love for God by your love for other people. It was extraordinary. And people that had nothing in common, all of a sudden they found that in Christ, they had everything in common. And then something extraordinary happened. This is really cool. And I enjoyed reading so much on this. Uh, is They call it the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And it was October the 28th in the year 312. And you have... Constantine, the emperor Constantine on his way to do battle with the co-emperor Maxentinius and they were going to find out who will become the supreme Roman emperor who would rule the empire. Now you study this out. This is not biblical. This is not in the Bible. This is history. Okay, so you can google the Milvian bridge uh, war battle or you can google October 8th, 312, all this will come up, and you can read history about it. But on his way to battle, Constantine is riding his horse and chariot, and all of a sudden he sees in the sky beyond the sun this cross in the sky. Now, when he sees this, he's blown away, and some people say that he heard a voice. Some people say that he saw the inscription uh, but either way, he heard or read this, in this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. So he stopped and he took some of his soldiers and he painted a sign on their shield. Some of them he painted the sign on their cross. I told TJ I should have gotten uh, this sign and as a slide. And he said, oh, I can do it. So he found the slide for me. This is what they painted. Now, this is the Greek alphabet of just XP. Okay, so just imagine XP. The X in Greek is key, and the P is rho, And together, key row means Christos, Christ. So, so he has this key row put on everyone's shield and, and on their chest. They went into battle. And you know what happened? He was victorious. Now, this is history. I'm giving you the history of the church, how we got to right here today. They're, they're victorious in battle, and Christians held him as conqueror. Now, remember, up to this point, Christianity is still illegal in the Roman Empire. You can't, you know, the letters of Paul that were being circulated were in secret. They were underground churches, churches. Um, All of a sudden, he has this vision, Constantine. He puts it on their shields and on their chest, and they are victorious. And the Christians hail him as conqueror. And suddenly, Constantine's faith exploded. He began to consider the one true God was the God of the Christians. And Christians began to gain status in the kingdom, in the Roman Empire. His victory celebration, suddenly the cross, which had up to this point always been a symbol of power in the Roman kingdom, in the empire. Now the cross became a symbol of Jesus' crucifixion. Up till then, it was just, hey, we are powerful. We will crucify you. We will kill you. Now, the cross wasn't about that anymore. It was about Jesus. It was a symbol of the crucifixion and what was birthed through it. And the phrase, even though it wouldn't be used until the 12th or 13th century, suddenly what was now known as the Holy Roman Empire. That's what happened. That's how we got to this point where they had a holy Roman Empire because these moments that Constantine had as he went into battle. The problem was this, that it was far more Roman, far more empire than it was holy, okay? A year later, Constantine legalized Christianity. This was huge, Huge. So in about three, the end of 312, 313, somewhere right in there, he legalized Christianity. (laughs) And when he did, he poured so much money into the church. He then elevated the status of bishops and priests. He began to build churches anywhere and everywhere that he heard there was a martyr that had died. He went and he built a church there. Suddenly, he became a collector of relics. Everything that Constantine did was about elevating the church and elevating Christianity. He built churches. Churches, now legally, did not have to pay taxes. That was awesome. So guess what? People were smart. So rich people started dedicating their houses and their manners to the church so that they didn't have to pay taxes. So the rich got even richer and became Christians. Why? Because it actually literally paid to follow Jesus under the leadership of Constantine. The church was exploding. It was becoming rich and powerful. The other thing that he did was Constantine banned crucifixion no more. That was awesome. The next thing he did, he gave rights to children. Then he donated money to every family who had taken kids in as as orphans. He started giving them money. This was incredible. And seemingly overnight, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. But the problem was, and this was to no one's intent, the problem was suddenly Christianity became inseparable from the empire. The church leaders had their own version of the temple model with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in it. So now the Roman Empire created new sacred places. So then what they did is they create, they collected all of Paul's writings, all of these Christian writings that were being circulated, and they put them in the temple, and they chained them to the altar, and they had sacred men that were to interpret those sacred texts to the people and tell those people how to live their life. They got back into this temple model. There was no one... There is no better understood than perhaps through what you've heard of as the Aryan controversy. How many of you have ever heard of the Aryan controversy? Um, it's a topic, if, if you grew up in, uh, in Catholic school, you may have heard it. Um, it was a theological controversy. And the reason I bring this up is because of where it's leading us to. So you got to remember, the church is now connected to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire now controls... The sacred texts, even Paul's writings, they now dictate how those sacred texts are to be interpreted. How are they, they are to be handed out? And then all of a sudden there's this controversy that comes. And the Arian controversy is all surrounded by one word, and it's the word begotten. It's, it was over the question, and maybe you've wrestled with it. Maybe you, you and your spouse fight about this at the dinner table every night. I don't know. But the question was this, did Jesus become God after he was born or was he born God, right? Y'all fight about that all the time, I'm sure, right? So, listen, to us, it's not a big deal. We're, you know, we're way over that. But to them in the fourth century, this was huge. It was so big. And a Christian leader by the uh, from Alexandria named Arius actually believed, that Jesus' divinity was conferred onto him as an adult as a reward for his faithfulness to God. Arius really believed that. And he had scriptures and texts and prophecies to back up what he believed. Then, uh, most church leaders, especially this guy by the name of Anas- uh, Anastasius, who led the charge against Arius, believed, no, Jesus actually was born divine, okay? He was born divine. So there's this huge battle. So what does Constantine do? Constantine says, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got this brand new holy movement in this holy kingdom, and we're not going to have divisions. So he calls a council meeting. He pays for the council meeting, and he hosts the council meeting. And he brings in Arius and Anastasius. uh, And he lets them debate. And they're to debate on which one's right. And so they all... Well, Anastasius, he gets to Constantine first. And Constantine is not a theologian. Okay? He's barely even a Christian, you know? He's still a Roman emperor and he's actually more Roman and more emperor than he is holy, if you know what I mean. Okay? And, And so... Constantine is showing him, in fact, Constantine was so barely Christian that he would not get baptized until he was on his deathbed. When he was on his deathbed, then he allowed them to baptize him so that he would make sure that all of his sins were covered. That's how (laughs) really Roman emperor he was, not so on the holy side. Anyway, side story. So they battle it out, and as they battle it out, they argued. Uh, there's this debate, and Anastasius, who argued persuasively that Jesus was born divine, he won the debate. He won the debate, but people didn't leave the debate and go, okay, well, you've proved your point, you're right, you know, Jesus is born divine, and we're just all going to be friends. No, 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 no. It started a big problem. It started this political issue. And through the political issues became financial issues. And that was not good for Constantine and his empire. So Constantine writes an edict, okay? He puts out a law, a rule. And and this is going to make a lot of sense when you think about church and how churches have gotten to where we are at today. So he writes this law. And here I'm just going to read how how the law reads. He says, and I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have immediately brought it forward and be and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. That's what the emperor wrote. They were arguing about was Jesus you know, born divine, or is he divine later? When did he become God? And all of a sudden, this edict is passed and sent out. And now, theological division was heresy, and it was punishable by death. Listen, suddenly believing the wrong thing was a crime. Suddenly, increased Christianity, What you believed trumped how you behaved. Christianity almost immediately became creedal. So some of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed and and other creeds that you may have memorized, and there's all these different creeds out there that are, great pieces of theology and, and so important to really our Christian history, history, some great creeds. But the problem with creeds are when these Christian writers would, would write these creeds down, the emperor had to approve these creeds. Well, the emperor was the main financial supporter of these ministries. Therefore, the emperor's being more Roman emperor than holy emperor had habits. You know what I'm talking about? Am i making myself clear here. So the Roman emperors were doing their things, even though they were holy. And so when you write a creed, you got to be careful not to offend the financial support of my whole ministry. And so they would write these creeds and these creeds would come out. And even in all these creeds and all the other creeds, there was never, ever a mention of love in any of these creeds. In fact, there was no mention of behavior at all. You could subscribe to that creed and basically do anything you wanted. Consequently, during this period of history, in fact, during all of history, no one was ever arrested, no one was ever persecuted, no one was ever executed because they loved too much. It was all about what they did and didn't believe. And then all of a sudden, for the first time in history, you have Christians
1: arresting
0: other Christians that didn't believe the right thing. Wow. And suddenly you have this version this church version, the Christian version of temple model. We're right back into the temple model that they worked so hard to destroy the temple model. Jesus destroyed it and we're right back in it. Sacred men now became the gatekeepers of heaven and hell and through withholding communion, which is what they would do, they would withhold communion or withholding baptism with the threat of excommunication. Suddenly the Pope and the priest and the bishop and the archbishops were the power and the kings and the lords and the land landowners feared the pope and the priests and the bishops and then in the 11th century as most of you may know this may remember this from school the first crusade was launched by pope urban II. he launched a crusade and in this crusade he promised anyone who goes and fights in this crusade all of your sins will be forgiven every one of them so he promised the remission of sins So what happens? All of these landowners and knights who had a lot of sin, they're like, shoot, man, I'm gonna go fight. (laughs) I got a a lot of stuff I need to forget. And so they go fight, and what they do is they go through all of Europe, and they rape, they murder, they destroy, they kill husbands, wives, children, all through the land. They get all the way to the Holy Land. When they get to the Holy Land, here's what they discover. You know what? We have permission now to kill and destroy and to murder. So you know what we need to do? We need to murder the ones that are responsible for the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because the Pope said, and he quotes, God wills it. God wills it. So what they did is they started killing Jews. And the greatest, the craziest anti-Semitic massacre in history up to this point had taken place. They were destroying them. Wealth was stolen, taken by men, all doing the will of God because God wills it. And God must have willed it because they were able to take over the city of Jerusalem. One hundred years later, I guess God didn't will it. Saladin took it back. And the crusaders have never controlled the city of Jerusalem in the way that they did in that first crusade ever. And suddenly, the temple model, it's back full in action. It was just a Christian version. It was sacred places with sacred men who controlled sacred texts because no one else had access to the Bible. It was all controlled by these sacred men. Nobody had access to the Bible, so they just had to believe. They just had to believe. It would be interpreted the way that these sacred men wanted it to be interpreted. And all of a sudden, this movement that was fueled by love for one another came to a screeching halt. The only people that kept it going was just a small remnant of people who really understood what the Jesus movement was about. Now, quickly, I'm going to go to another year real fast. This is another important year. So those of you that are sleeping, hang, hang wake up just for a second. This is going to be a good one. In the year 1517, this is a really important one. This marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation everybody say the Protestant Reformation Martin Luther anybody ever heard of him Martin Luther Martin Luther and others They were not trying to abandon the church like some people have said they just were trying to reform the church Thus the word Reformation, right? But the church leaders saw Martin Luther and those people coming against them and they saw it as a protest thus the word Protestant Reformation, okay? Martin Luther, who was a Greek scholar, understood, listen, Martin Luther understood that none, zero zilch, of what the church was standing for could be found in any of the Gospels. It couldn't be found in the Gospels. Certainly their version of salvation. He couldn't find their version of salvation in the gospel. Certainly, the idea that the pope or archbishop or bishops could control who goes to purgatory and how long they stay there. Couldn't find that in the Gospels. And so, Martin Luther began to reform the church. And consequently, as you know, Martin Luther was excommunicated. But he didn't care because he didn't believe that the pope had power to excommunicate anyone. So, it didn't bother him. So, within the context of the Reformation there were several solas that came to light. The most popular one was sola fide, which simply means by faith alone. Everybody say by faith alone. By faith, And this became the landmark of the Protestant movement. By faith alone. By faith alone. We believe that salvation is not by works. It is by faith alone. He could prove that in the gospel. He did prove that in the Gospels. Then all of a sudden, Martin Luther and others began to teach this, that it was by faith alone. The printing press had been created during this time period. Suddenly the scriptures were being translated into English. William Tinsdale, uh, we talked about that last week, he was actually killed for printing in English, putting it in English and sending it to his people. Martin Luther was actually chased down and hunted like a criminal because he printed it and sent it into Germany and printed it in German. And they were spreading the gospel. They were trying to get it into the hands of every person they could because at this time, the second sola was really uh, brought into play. And that was sola scriptura because the reformers believed, like many of us believe, that the scripture, not the church, had the power and authority. This is why Martin Luther was so adamant on making copies of the scriptures. He made copies, sent it out, made copies, sent it out, made copies. What language? What language do we need to get it in? And they were putting it in every language possible at the time and sending it out and sending it out and sending it out and sending it out. And that, you know what happened? That became a threat to the church. (laughs) Because now... You don't have to take my word for it. You can actually look it up yourself. You can actually interpret it yourself. I don't have the power. I don't have the control that I once had. And Martin Luther started sending this out. And Martin Luther says this, that a simple layman armed with the scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. It was about the scripture, it was about understanding the scripture, and without meaning to it, and without understanding where this would go, suddenly in the hands of the reformers, the scriptures became the very same thing that the papal authority did before. The scriptures became a weapon. Even though the Reformers meant right and said, hey, now you take it. You take it, Tisha. You take it, Kevin. You take it, Alan. You take it. Everybody take it. And I want you to read. You need the Scriptures. It's powerful. This is a powerful tool. They did that, and it became powerful. Then all of a sudden, the Protestants did the same thing through the Reformation that the Roman government had done, that the powers be had done. And all of a sudden, it became splintered. The Reformation splintered. And it went into three, and then six, and then a dozen, and then two dozen, and now today there are over a thousand Protestant denominations all over the world. And you know what divided them? Because of their love for one another, because some of them love differently, because some of them know what divided them was their interpretation of the text. Because now you had a lot more sacred places with a lot more sacred men interpreting these sacred texts the way they see fit. Telling everyone how to live their lives. Showing them what would grant them entrance into heaven and what would send them to hell. Protestants, since this time, have been beating people over the head with the Bible ever since. And the tragedy, the greatest tragedy of that whole day, that whole movement, the whole Reformation, is that love lost. Love was lost. It became about everything else rather than love. And, and if you go to this church, you, you probably are sick to death to hear us say over and over and over, love, 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 love. But that is the thing. That is the key ingredient that was lost in the very beginning in all this mess, in everything. Now, the next part of this sermon, I'm totally making this up, okay? This is just Jared 103 or whatever. Totally making this up. This is not scripture, but I just have a great imagination. So I would imagine that at some point through all of this mess throughout history, let's just imagine for a minute that Jesus and Paul were standing at the gates of heaven and they were watching everything unfold and play out. And I just gave you hundreds of years in history in like just a few minutes. And I apologize for that. Um, but they're standing there at the gates, and they're watching everything unfold, and Jesus looks at the apostle Paul, and he says, wow, how did this happen? How did this happen? Man, (laughs) Paul, I was so clear. (laughs) I was so clear. In fact, right before I left, I gathered the guys together, the guys who we knew were going to be the catalyst to carry this thing forever. (laughs) I got down on my hands and knees, and I washed their nasty feet. I washed their feet, and then I looked at them right in their eyes, and I said, as I loved you, because this is an example. What I'm doing right here, this is an example of what you're to do for one another. And as I loved you, so you must love one another. And by this love, everyone will know that you are my disciple because you love one another. Paul, I told them that. It was as clear as day. And then I would imagine the Apostle Paul looks at Jesus and goes, hey, listen, big man, that was awesome what you said. <laughs> and, and I love what you said. In fact, I piggybacked off what you said. But listen, I wrote mine down. I actually wrote mine. I didn't just tell a small group of people in a private room. I wrote mine down, and it was passed out throughout the entire world. Everywhere, it was passed around. In fact, it's a part of a book now that's the number one selling book of all the history of mankind. So I wrote mine down, and here's what I wrote, and I couldn't be any more clear either, Jesus. I said this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And Jesus is like, that's pretty clear. Yeah, and I wrote it down. And Jesus is like, well, other men wrote mine down. I didn't have to write it down. Other people wrote mine down. And then Peter walks up, and Peter goes, hey, I heard you guys talking. Listen, that's great, but you know how embarrassed I am? You got a garden tomb. You know what they built over my burial site? A temple. Right? A temple. They built a temple right where I'm buried. But like you, Paul, I too, I wrote mine down. I wrote mine down because I wanted it to be passed around. I wanted them to know. And I said this, have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from The heart. So the question is this. How did this happen? How did something so clear, so crystal clear, I mean, Jesus was so clear. Easy, easy to understand. Not hard to decipher, not hard to to interpret. Paul, so clear. And Paul, really, to me, even... And, and this is going to sound really sacrilegious here, please hear me, my heart. Paul, to me, had probably more authority to speak on this than even Jesus did. Jesus came as the Messiah, but they had a hard time buying into that. They watched him do mi- miracles. They had a hard time. Paul was actually a leader of the law. And then he saw the Jesus movement. If anybody had power to speak on that, Paul did. Paul couldn't be more... Clear when he says, The only thing out of everything that I know, everything that I've studied, everything that I've taught, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Listen, I'll tell you how it happened, and here's the reasons because there's a little temple model in all of us, and our consciences have been shaped by it. What you fear. What you think is sin, how you view sin, what you think God condemns, what you think makes God mad, what you think makes God happy, um, the things that you've been taught, all of these things have been taught to us in such a way that our consciences have been shaped by it. And consequently, we continue to hold on to things that hold us back. Have you ever wondered how close to sin you can get without actually sinning? Mm-hmm. So, God, you know, I, I, I know i hear. here. Listen, people ask me, have asked me this my whole ministry, you know, as a pastor. Hey, Pastor Jared, is so-and-so a sin? Is such-and-such such a sin? Can I do this? Can I do that? Listen, that is temple model thinking. I never even answered that question. Such a bad question. Do you think this is sin? Do you think that is sin? Listen, temple model. How close can I get to sin without ticking God off? If you've ever had that thought, that's temple model thinking. Jay, will you come up here? Let me ask you this one. At this time right now, have you ever felt, and this doesn't apply to everybody, but I hear people say that they'll call me and they'll say, hey, I'm so sorry, I missed church, or I'm so sorry, I'll be back, whatever. Listen, have you ever felt more guilty about missing church? than you have about the way that you treat someone at work. That somehow in your thinking, those things, church, you know, or mass or whatever you go to, takes precedent over how you treat other people. Have you ever thought that? Because our consciences are so wound up in that kind of thinking and that kind of feeling, but that is temple model thinking. If you've ever had that thought, that's what it is. Or maybe this, and, and this is a sensitive subject because I have dealt with this over the years, but if you've ever feared for the eternal destiny of your child based on whether or not your child was baptized, that's temple model. Because someone convinced you that putting water on the head of your child would determine whether where they spend eternity. And I understand that because as a parent, you fear... And you fear because no one loves your kids like you do, right? Nobody, nobody loves our kids like, like we do. We love them. We love hard. But let me tell you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all gave us Jesus' opinion. And Jesus says, hey, you bring the children. You bring them to me. Bring them to me. And then he points at one of them. And he says, you see this? Now you become one of them. You become like this. You become like this. temple model thinking here's one maybe you failed morally whatever however you want to describe or define morally you had an affair you've had several affairs you weren't married and you were having sex out of marriage uh, however you want to define morally you did something just terrible here's the question were you more concerned about what God would do to you than you were about what you did to the person you sinned with or that you sinned against. Because if you were, that's temple thinking. Temple thinking. The worshiper is always more concerned about themselves than other people. In temple model thinking, the worshiper is selfish. The worshiper is me, 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 me. How am I doing, God? How am I doing, God? How am I doing, God? And in Jesus' model, it's about you. It's about you. It's about you. How are you doing? Are you okay? How did I affect you? Is there any of that in you? I know there is in me. Because temple model pollution, it, just a little bit of it can destroy the whole thing. It can pollute and corrupt the entire thing. Do your beliefs and your theology ever get in the way of how you love people? That's a tough one. And when you hear that question in church, you immediately think of, no, I love everybody. No, I'm not talking about the people that you naturally love. I'm talking about the tough ones. The ones that you see a commercial about them on TV and you go, ugh, again? Sorry, that got real close to home. You pull your toes back. The people that you go, I'm so tired of hearing about them. I'm so tired of this getting crammed in my face. Imagine a world where every single believer in Jesus got up every single day and recognized this. God is great with me. God is great with me. If we understood that, then what we could do is we could put our efforts on being great with everyone around us. Because when we do that, they can now become great with God because they see that in us. Because I think what fuels the temple model thinking in many of us is simply our failure to truly embrace the gospel. And the gospel is this. I'm going to close right here. The gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that Jesus died for you. He died for you. And when you can really get that inside of your head and inside of your heart, when you can really understand that he died for you, then you will begin to realize that he is for you you he is for you you can understand that Jesus and his father are unequivocally for you there is no measure, there is no sin that puts you outside of their love that grace has no measure that grace has no limits and once you settle on to that once it gets into your heart it becomes the context and the love God has for you And other people becomes the context and through which you understand Scripture. It becomes the context through which we interpret the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it goes right back to what Jesus said when he said, hey, it's really simple. Love God and demonstrate that love for God by loving other people. When you aren't sure what to do, ask, what does love require of me? God's love for us and for those around us must inform our conscience and shape our behaviors. See, the church was on this awesome, I mean, extraordinary journey moving. And somehow through probably good intention, I, I believe Constantine probably had the best of intentions really I mean he, he saw this vision things were great probably meant the best but unfortunately he pulled us back into this temple model and the church has just slowly ridden that temple model we just keep sprinkling Jesus in because we know it's really all about Jesus but it's so much temple man I'm on a journey and those of you that know me and I've been around You know, I'm on a journey to strip. I don't want anything to do with the temple model. I just want Jesus. Just want Jesus. Will you stand with me this morning? Let me pray over us. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for preserving the sacred text and for preserving these life-giving words that at the end of the day, It's as simple as loving you. It's as simple as loving an invisible God through loving, visible people. God, that we can share our love for you by our love for people. People that aren't like us. People that don't understand us. People who who hurt us. People who have betrayed us. Father, perhaps we could be the generation, we could be the church that our kids and our grandkids would see in us a form or a version of Christianity that truly incorporates and embraces the newness. And that little by little, each of us individually and as a group of of churches, we would leave behind those things that should have been left behind a long, long time ago. father I pray that in your name we would never hurt an individual regardless of what they've done what they believe what we believe so father I ask right now today that you give us wisdom wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard and give us the courage to do it as we live this out as we live this out and exercise it every single day God, let us be the change. Give us the power and the courage to stand up and walk mightily and be the change to get back to the naked truth of who you are. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. 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 Wow. Listen, don't miss next week. I was going to throw a couple teasers in there, but I didn't, but don't miss next week as we get into part four of this. And I just want to say too, thank you so much. um, Those who have been faithful and giving Uh, every month, I just kind of get nervous and get scared, you know, because through all this COVID stuff, we've, you know, everybody tells me, Hey, we're watching online and we're being a part of this and that, but every month I watch our finances and we get towards the first of the month and I go, "Uh Oh man, we're going to be in trouble this month. And then first of the month, we just, we make it, we just make it. And it's just faithfulness. It's your faithfulness and being a part of that. So thank you for giving those that are watching online. If you uh, didn't know, you can be a part of that as well. You can give on our app or on our, 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 uh, webpage. But I just want to say thank you. And, uh, I hope that this church will continue to be a blessing to you and challenge you to grow in your relationship with God. We just love you guys. Hope you have a great weekend. God bless you guys.